got friends, only wanna talk business. I got expensive, cause when is expensive. I got expensive, cause when is expensive. I've been reading all the work. And welcome to Put That Coffee Down here on Freight Waves at TV. It's 12 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday. I'm Kevin Hill, your host. This is the, the Freight Sales Show for Closers. We have a special guest here with us today. It's Spencer Tinney, the president and CEO over at Tinney Group. We're going to talk about MA. We're going to talk about financing. We're going to talk about probably banking failures here in, in a little bit. Um, but I, let's welcome Spencer onto the show right now. How are you doing today, Spencer? I'm doing great, Kevin. It's great to be with you. It's great to, to see you again. Uh, 2023 uh, has been interesting because of deals so far, and that's what you guys do over at the Tinny Group. So uh, let's jump into it. First of all, I have a question for you because I did an interview um, about suggestions uh, and a playbook uh, for anyone who wanted to, uh, to start a trucking fleet and grow it or, or grow their trucking fleet right now. Maybe it's 10 or 20 trucks to a thousand trucks and um, some, uh, whether it's a playbook or, or maybe one or two things that, that you just have to keep in mind or maybe the most important things. And I wanted to, to ask you that um, first right off the bat. Well, I would say that that the, the, the population of business owners that have started with one truck and got to a thousand is, is, is pretty, it's pretty small. And so I think my, my, my just, recognizing the the realities of how challenging that is to home grow that result i think that the first thing i would say is that you got to start with a foundation because there's like if you can skip a couple iterations of the growing cycle pains then then you'll be much further along so if you at least start with the foundation of maybe 200 trucks the the probability of getting to a thousand trucks exponentially goes up uh, just because you have the infrastructure in place and a team to help you get where you want to go. And quite honestly, just to, to do it from one truck, uh, it's just a much larger, complex challenge. I think that would be my recommendation. Set the foundation, get the right people in place that can help. It's a team sport. And you want to make sure that you get the right people in place that can help you get where you want to go. And uh, just to increase, in, increase the, you, you, hey, you're, you're a sales guy, incle- increase the closing ratio. Like that's what we want to do. It's a, so uh, th- that would be my my single most um, important piece of advice, and that is so that that's really good. Uh, that's it's really interesting and 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 well put, because it's probably better just to go out and buy a two hundred truck fleet to start off if that's really your goal, right? If if you're going out and, and doing that to raise the money, buy a two hundred truck fleet and, and start there. Well, you're going to buy it no matter what, no, no matter how you look at it in terms of all of the expenses. And and the the data uh, is undeniable, and that's it's not specific to trucking or anything else. In terms, of, you know, in terms of the comparison of fibers bill, it's there's no comparison. It's not just because of this is what I do. It's just the math. You can't deny it. It's just so much more cost effective to buy an existing machine that has proven results, and then stack your investment on top of that versus taking all of the risk on your own shoulders. Yeah, let's talk about that because that's a. a- very good point is buy versus build. And what you said uh, earlier, you're going to pay for it no matter what. Whether you build it or you buy it, you're going to pay for it. It doesn't come for free. So uh, buy and build, what's the analytics behind that in a lot of cases? And, and what are some of the risks and, and challenges and uh, opportunities of that? No, I think you just if you put it from a sales 
um, lens. I mean, I don't know what the exact data, but I think it's something like the, you know, um, the cost to maintain a customer is like seven times less expensive than creating a new one. So it's effectively the same concept. And like, if we have, let's call it $50 million, like the cost to just maintain that and build on that is exponentially smaller than it is to go try to create $50 million revenue stream from scratch uh, with new customers and doing that one at a time. So I, I think it's just about accelerating, about just, you know, chalking it up. Like here are the known costs that it's going to re be required of me to get to this point. So let's just get it at a discount rate, buy it, and then be much more efficient in the way that we make additional investments on top of that. You're exactly right. It, it, it is just seven, eight times. I don't know the exact number myself, but it's exponentially smaller to maintain current business than it is to, to go out and add each new additional customer. And also, it, it, one, of, one, of my thing, one, one of my points was know your niche and, and stick to that niche if you're going to grow through that. If you can already buy a niche, uh, it's much easier to stick to it if you already have 200 trucks or, or 300 or 400, however many that is. Maybe it's just 50, right? It's much easier to stick with that niche than it is to, to start out and, and be buying trucks on your own, establishing accounts on your own, and stay really focused uh, to the point where you can uh, build a, a business and a niche that could get you to 1,000 trucks. Yeah, I, I, I just think that in the absence of... Um anything else, you're effectively just assuming a job, whether like, and so, and if you're the one doing all the work, it's very difficult to get out of the weeds and work on the business. And so I think that's just what we're trying to do is just allow to make the types of decisions and investments that allow you to build and not just work. And, and one of the other points is if you're going to grow anything to a thousand trucks or, you know, a billion dollars in revenue, if you're, if you're a freight brokerage, right, you got to know how to do deals. You got to know how to, how to to buy businesses, and you know have to know how to sell yourself uh, once you get to your goal, right? No, uh, I think that has a big part of it, just in terms of the the again the realities of the marketplace. It's just um, very difficult to execute if the the growth strategy is limited entirely to you know you know organic growth methodology. So it's a so I just think that just. Um, you know, it's just much more practical to have some type of combination of organic and inorganic growth to get where you want to go, specifically in this environment. And to, 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 to start knowing how to do deals, you need advisors for those deals. And uh, you've been doing deals in the space for for a long time. How long have you been been uh, been doing deals, Spencer? Well, I, I, I grew up in it. My dad started advising on deals uh, in the transportation space back in 1973. And so, um, you know, I've been with, uh, you know, with, it's been in the family for as long as I could know. I mean, he, he used to take me to trade shows and we were part of best practice groups and I would get to sit on conversations involving M&A. So it's, it, it's very fortunate to have had that experience, but on the professional level, the last 25 years, this is basically what I've done. And, uh, you know, we have a great team over at Tenning Group. We're trying to help as many folks as we can and, and primarily serving that uh, lower middle market, which is your kind of 20 to 300 million in annual revenue, and um, which is highly underserved. There's a, it's a little bit too big for for your kind of generalist to understand, and then maybe not quite large enough for your premier global investment banks uh, for the math to make sense for them to get involved. So uh, to me, it's just a privilege. We get to help people, whether they're growing through acquisition 
or, you know, living the American dream and, and, and exiting on something that, you know, it's their life's work. It's just a tremendous privilege to be a part of this community and to, and to be a part of, of this, you know, important point in people's lives. And, and doing tools and trucking is, is different than other industries. I mean, it really is because it is very capital intensive. It's very has, asset heavy. Uh, it's very competitive. Uh, what are some of the, the, the big differences that, that, that you lead in? That, that he's, here are the, Here's the major difference here, the top three major differences, wh- whatever that number is. Major differences in, in buying and selling trucking companies rather than almost any other industry. Well, I, I think that right off there's, um, it's, it's not for every investor. I think just the CapEx nature of, of, of what this is. Uh, it's very difficult, for instance, for just a general private equity group to understand and get their mind around an investment thesis. Where how how are we going to get a, an a, an, a, an effective, um, competitive return if every three to five years we're having to turn over the whole fleet? Like how how does that work? And so um, so number one, I think it's complicated because we need a very educated um, investor that understands the nuances of of this industry. We also need you know. We, got, we have to get funding. So whether it's the capital source or whether it is on, on, on the senior debt, there has to have an appetite and that we can get a deal at a valuation that they feel comfortable with debt covenants and things of that nature. And then, you know, highly, highly cyclical in some ways, depending on what vertical you're in in this space. And so that there's always, you know, um, when, when, when we're trying to negotiate and think about networking capital and what it, how do we calculate that and who retains that? I think there are some elements of that that are very specific to this industry that can really become problematic uh, when we're trying to iron out all the things. And then, you know, the lastly, I would say just in terms of on the on the on the risk and the diligence, all the things that we have to consider um, when you think about nuclear verdicts and exposure that we're transferring risk from one party to another. It's just a host of things for people to get their mind around, um, and that's why we exist. I mean, our our, our objective, although we represent probably 95% of our 18 deals that we do right now, um, are we're representing the sellers, but but we're also providing insurance for the buyers because when we inevitably have some type of discovery or a challenge that affects both parties, like we're there to provide a solve that helps people mitigate risk, share risk appropriately, and, and get a deal to the finish line. And so I think it's a, it's not easy, but it sure is fun. It isn't. It isn't easy whatsoever. Uh, and I, I talked about picking your niche here on Put That Coffee Town constantly, like a broken record almost. And I, I think the deals that make the most sense, especially for like private equity or outside investors or for really any investors, are those trucking companies that have built up around a niche, whether that's uh, tanker, the, the tanker business always seems like it's a, a good play. Um, if you focus in on one specific type of commodity, if you focus in on uh, equipment type, maybe just heavy haul, just a really highly specialized uh, book of business and equipment seems to um, counter some of the, the market sickle, sickleness of so the market cycles, right? It, it kind of combats the market cycles, makes the, uh, the earnings not quite as volatile as maybe uh, a regular dry van business that's over the road and, and kind of um, all over the map. Uh, that this much harder entity to, to, to sell, I think, than uh, a, a business that's focused around a heavy specialization where you can um, have predictable earnings. 
No, I think that's completely true. And probably the most, um, one of the most direct examples of that was the deal that we did with uh, Keenan Advantage Group and American Petrolog, where, you know, American Petrolog was a very defined interest in terms of, um, you know, their 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 specific brokerage um, presence within uh, the liquid bulk space, and there's some transloading element to that as well. And it just there was nothing like them. And so, uh, and and you know, Keenan, who's one of the most prolific acquirers in the entire space, clearly recognized the uniqueness of it and how it was a, an immediate competitive advantage, value add to what they were doing, complementary. And to your point about it, um, it wouldn't matter what environment we were in. That, it, it was going to pop in terms of as an offering to the marketplace because, uh, and even in, in, in market, like I would even kind of double down on what you said, because um, from a differentiation standpoint, when you, when you do have a niche offering in a market where it is a little bit softer as it is right now, it pops even more as far as like, you know, demonstrating its value based on what the, the environment is doing to other companies. And if, if, if there's some insulation from that, it makes it shine even brighter. Yeah. I mean, you want to, you, you want to build a business. Uh, we talk about sustainable businesses, right? You want to build a business where you go back into that builder buy for larger players. And you want to build a business that is a, a more attractive buy that, rather than build for a larger company it is, is a great strategy to, to, to operate your business on especially if you want to sell it eventually at the end of the day, right? Well, yeah, and I, I think that the challenge, and this is true of every business owner, but the challenge, like when you have something like the niche is to understand like, you know, where are there going to be growth constraints? Because like if, it, if, if if you could grow a niche to, you know, multi-billion, then, you know, then is it, it's probably not a, really a niche. Like, like so, it's, so, so it may, maybe, uh, but, but, but I think that the issue is, 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 for those that have done that, like built something and exited, um, you know, just to use the same example, I mean, that's like, like that's a seven year start to exit window where they had a tremendous track record of sustained, compelling growth. Uh, and there was still some meat on the bone for the acquirer to go continue that growth story. I think where, where some of the challenges on the, on, on some of the niche operators is perhaps if they exhaust whatever they, you know, they exhaust the market, they get too far and there's no place for the acquirer to take it. So, um, it's effectively staying at the table a little too long. And then they, the, the investment story or thesis for the buyers, you know, not as attractive as it would be otherwise, if there was still a little runway for the growth to take place. True. Very true. Very true. Well, let's talk about 2023 and kind of some of the, the, the deals on the table or, or the chatter around the, the, the market and, and has anything been surprising so far this this year, you know, already in, in the first four months of the year or maybe what you expect on the back half? Yeah, well, I, I don't think I wouldn't characterize it as unexpected. I think that we were expecting uh, shifts in, in the freight market and expected that to affect the way that deals get done. And I would say that, you know, there's still very high M&A activity. But, you know, when, you, when you're seeing what's happening in the freight markets, it's naturally going to affect the way that buyers and lenders and sellers see risk as far as the outlook moving forward and how they structure deals around that. So right now, I think that we have, you know, tremendous engagement in, in the, uh, you know, the 18 active sell side engagements that we represent. And, you know, some of those are in different processes. Um, 
And, and the realities are like when, when if, if the business is changing up or down, like you have to account for that in deal structure. And so, 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 so what that means is that you're you know, perhaps seeing some, some shift to earn out, or maybe there might be some wait and see elements to that. Just to, you know, if there's something is, uh, appears to be, you know, very temporary, you know, it's not uncommon at all for people to just press the pause button. Let's evaluate for the next 90 days, make sure that we don't have any blind spots about this before we you know, start writing very large checks for an acquisition. So we're seeing some of that, but uh, we're also seeing uh, a continuation of what started back in Q4, which is just tremendous um, new activity from buyers that have really not been in the game for years. But now, like, have because the markets have normalized a little bit, they've known that they've needed to integrate acquisitions as part of their broader growth strategy. And... um you know, not trying to be uh, opportunistic as much more as just like, hey, like we've been waiting for the markets to cool a little bit in terms of what was going on. But now we have to make some moves to go catch up and offset some of these inflated costs uh, while especially while the, you know, the freight market's a little softer, it's even more urgent to kind of make some of these moves. To, to create the synergies necessary to be sustainable moving forward. When we're talking about synergies. Uh, are we talking, is it more on the cost side, uh, capturing synergies on the cost side because of rising costs or on the, the capability side for their customer base uh, because of the pandemic and, and the, the chaos and the supply chain constraints there uh, when you're talking about urgency or the need? Um, is it coming from both both sides equally or? I think it's both. I think, well, I think it's both. It's both. I mean, I think when you see labor uh, costs go up and, 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 you know, and then spot market going down, per, you know, significantly, that that creates a, a major uh, effect on the bottom line and the earnings. And so, so I think that you know, this is, um, this would be happening irrespective of what's going on in the market. It's just that when the freight market is down, it just makes the pain of those inflated expenses uh, that much, you know, more um, pronounced. So, so, so I, so I think part of what the continuation is people have been, it's a low margin industry. You have to constantly be thinking about how to advance your capabilities and path to profitability. And so for some people, you know, that's organic growth, that's expanding, that's reducing costs, but in a low margin industry, there's only so many pennies that you can squeeze out of a dollar. You have to start doing some things that are synergistic, um, to offset, you know, the, 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 the you know, the way that these uh, expenses are increasing. So, so I, I think the, 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 the need to enhance capabilities to meet the demands of the consumer, that's part of it, like to be relevant. And then the other part of it is we, you, you have to have a, a cost structure that is sustainable and without some synergies, without some purchasing power through bulk, uh, through volume, it's just very challenging to do that. So I think that's why we're seeing irrespective of what's happening in the capital markets with rising interest rates, like the cost of doing nothing right now is much more damaging than absorbing some additional interest expense. Because, you know, if, you, if your labor is up 20, 30%, like, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to shave that um, through through cost cutting. Like you're going to have to figure out some other ways to address that. Uh, you, you are, you are, you mentioned raising interest rates. Um, has there been a, uh, uh, change in appetite with with banking and lenders because of the, the hit regional banks are taking right now uh, because of SVB and, and First Republic, um, or is that uh, not really too much of a concern right now? 
I mean, I, I think it's very real for your larger deals. I mean, it's very, you know, that that has significant influence on the way that um, deals are thought about. When you, you start getting, a, a, you know, into that kind of nine-figure threshold of total transaction value, um, you know, it's definitely different in terms of the piecing the puzzle together to get a deal done. And so I, I, I do think that the instruments have changed over the last six to 12 months as it relates to senior debt, MES, whatever else to, to try to get some of these, given the environment. Uh, for smaller and mid-sized deals, um, less so. They're still going to get, there's still a ton of deals um, because, you know, they're, they're, they're highly collateralized through the assets in, unless we're, we're, we're talking about brokerage. But, um, yeah, so I, I think major changes for your large kind of transformational deals um, that require third-party capital or or lending, and then but but uh, you know maybe some impact, but not nearly as much as you would think on the, you know the the, the types of transactions that involve let's say fifty to two hundred trucks. What, what what's your category categorization of small and medium? If you want to go by truck size or revenues, um, how, how do you categorize this? Yeah, I mean I would say I would say pretty much anything up to a hundred million in revenue. That was that's kind of how I was on the on the truckload side, um, and, and and I would I would say I would I would say small let's say small maybe twenty to eighty trucks and then the, you know eighty to a couple hundred on that midsize. That makes sense. Um, uh, when we talk about buying and selling, uh, we always talk about the top line price. We always talk about doing the deal, kind of like in sales, right? Where we're always focusing on the close, right? That close where you sign on the dotted line, um. But that's when all the work actually starts. And when you talk about integrations and uh, absorbing and synergies, that's when all the hard work actually begins. And that's something that we don't really talk about or ever really pay attention to. Um, but, uh, you know, how important is that? Or, or what do people get right? What do people often get wrong uh, when it comes to after the, 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 the cash has changed hands? After it's signed, and when you start doing your earnout, if you're selling your business, I mean, what are some of those pitfalls? I think the people that are most effective, the acquirers that are most effective post transaction, there's a couple things that they do that are unique. I think the first thing that they do during due diligence, they are um, leaned in very heavily on on the management team of the target acquisition. And they're learning and they're listening. And they're also demonstrating significant humility and openness about, well, whoever they have on there, their team may not be the best. There's a reason why they're acquiring these people. So in terms of when they're thinking about integration, they're really thinking about between the two companies, who are the the appropriate leaders to affect change in terms of what we're trying to do moving forward. And sometimes the initial idea is like, we've got the very best of the best, but as they, as they lean in during due diligence and they learn from the target acquisitions operational team, um, sometimes they discover that we don't have the best. Like, this is why we're buying this company because they're actually the folks that we need to lean on, lean on it as far as seeing them as the platform. We've had multiple deals that have happened this way where, you know, maybe a private equity group thinks um, they have a, a platform company and they look at initially as a target acquisition, as a bolt-on, something that they'll absorb, capture uh, instant synergies. But after demonstrating some humility, like actually, like this is the leader of the two. This is the this is the platform for which we will continue to build and invest on. 
And sometimes it's a, it's a blend of the two. But I think the number one thing is demonstrate some humility to be open to the fact that, hey, you're buying this, making sure that you're extracting the best that you can from a value standpoint. Start with the people, like in terms of be open to what their capabilities are. The second thing that they do is that they resist, uh, despite the potential immediate synergies, they resist kind of sweeping changes to the organization. Because even through thoughtful due diligence between 90 to 120 days, there's only so much that you can really discover. You have to see this, what this team does and learn for them post-transaction and find out what are the right adjustments and listen to the people that are actually doing the work. They will help you affect the right change to capture the right long-term uh, synergies that will be sustainable. Because what can happen alternatively, if, you're, if you move too quickly, um, you may have synergies for six months, but but you cut off uh, significant um, portions or departments of the business that could have offered tremendous value. So I think that like what we see other folks doing that um, they, they show some restraint to make that immediate changes as far as like, hey, let's just take it down. That's the synergies there. And um, yes, they, they have a, a responsibility to deliver value to shareholders. Yes, they're trying to address a very specific problem that probably is cash flow related that they need to do these things. But I think that they're, um, you know, you know, using a scalpel versus a uh, an axe or a hatchet is, is probably the right methodology, specifically within that first 90 to 180, 180 days. That makes sense. That, that, that makes sense because um, you, you never know where value is going to come from. Uh, six months down the road and not making wholesale changes is very important. I have one more question for you. Um, and Erin can cut out what she needs to cut out to, to fit in 26 minutes. We'll go a little bit long, but it'll, it'll be out there in the podcast because I do want to ask you this question is the, for, for the last few years, um, as baby boomers retire, uh, we've been hearing about this and it's, it's like a snowball coming in. And what it really is, is what the, what was the M&A or the seller's market going to look like um, as these these entrepreneurs from the baby boom generation want to uh, become liquid, right? Now, whether that goes down to the family, whether those businesses are, are going to be on the market or is, is that going to, is that trend going to continue? A hundred percent. I mean, this we're in the middle of one of the greatest phenomenons in the history of mankind in terms of the transfer of wealth. I mean, we're talking about, I think the number's like $30 trillion globally. Like like what's going to happen in terms of like from this generation to the next? I mean, it's it, it, it'll blow your mind. And so what does that mean? Um, what's true in trucking, what's true in other industries is that um, it, it's a supply and demand issue. When you have that disproportionate amount of companies that enter the supply of available companies to purchase, it, it, it's unavoidable. It will affect value and it will affect deal structure and it will affect the options that are available to owners when the supply of companies inevitably um, drastically outnumber the available purchasers for those businesses. And so, um, so I, I think the idea is just to be, not to like spook anybody or anything like that, just be mindful. Like, hey, like look at what you're, of the next two to three to four years, you know, if you love what you do, if you're independently wealthy, this is a non-issue. You don't care. doesn't matter. Um, but if this is something that's going to be a material part of, you know, creating financial security for your spouse, for your family, for next generation, then you need to really start talking about wealth preservation and how to go about activating that because that's really what it is uh, as you think about exiting. And so 
um, you know, for those that that really want to have more influence over selecting the trustee of what their of their company legacy, then yeah, it's gonna be harder to do that if you're in a much broader pool and the supply of companies to purchase is much larger. You're exactly right. It's going to be interesting. And then next, when's do you think over the next decade? When I say that, when do you think we see the the height or the the peak of that that sellers or that supply of companies coming in? Uh, whether it's trucking, you know, as we were talking about, thirty trillion worldwide. You know, when is said that the peak of the baby boomer kind of retirement or uh, cashing out or handing the reins over to the younger generation and their businesses. I mean, I mean, we're kind of in the middle of that right now. I mean, I, quite honestly, I think during COVID um, postponed a lot of exits for a lot of people. I mean, they would have exited. Uh, that was disrupted. So I think we're still kind of from an inventory standpoint, there's still a lot built up that should have exited, but now will exit in 23, um, which will again create a more disproportionate supply of available companies to purchase. And so... Um, I, I think we're kind of there in the middle of it. There's probably another uh, five, six years of kind of this, you know, this generation kind of transitioning to the next and it's in terms of ownership. But um, I mean, with that, there's tremendous opportunity. Um, I, I think that it, it's an exciting time to think about successors. I think it's an exciting time to consider all possibilities uh, to create wealth and value in this business, because I think you've got more people at the table who have aligned interests. I mean, like we, we, we need to build value. We need to protect value. And I think when you're, when you're having conversations like that, a lot of good things can happen. So I'm very optimistic that we'll see some special things within this space uh, from a value creation standpoint in the, uh, in the years ahead. I, I do too. I, I can't wait to see it. I, I, I really can't. It's, it's going to be an interesting time. It's be a great time for you, Spencer. Uh, thanks for, for joining us today on Put That Coffee Down. It was uh, wonderful as always. I, I think I was on the hot seat a couple weeks ago. Uh, but it, it is always, it's always great talking to you. Well, well, likewise, I've been waiting for the invite and you didn't disappoint and appreciate you having me on, sir. You bet. Thank you very much. And with all of that, that's Spencer Tinney, president and CEO over at the Tinney Group, the dealmaker himself. And that's going to wrap up for this episode of Put That Coffee Down. See you next week. I got friends only wanna talk business. I got expensive, cause when is expensive? I got expensive, cause when is expensive? I've been getting out of work. And I've been shutting down the stars. Yeah, cause when it rain and it pours. Yeah, and I'm ready for some more. Yeah, and I've been reading out of work.